Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi. Hello. Hi. Nice to meet you, Lauren. Nice to meet you. Oh, you have not talked to this particular Radfem before, hmm? Oh, Radfem. Well, I'm their lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> what is a Radfem? Is there one definition? Because it seems like everybody's got a different take. I knew you were going to come out with these tough questions. Um, yeah, I, I'm less philosophical on it. I take a radical feminist approach to my legal philosophy on looking at women's rights. And that's how I approach it. Um, why I object to defining woman by anything other than sex because that's the basis of women's oppression throughout history and place and time. Candace, do you jive with that? I I jive with that understanding of where radical feminists are coming from in centering and framing things based on an understanding of what the root problems and, and causes are. Mm-hmm. differences between freedom and liberation, equality and equity, those kinds of conversations come into play when I, I think my lifelong political home has been more center of right. And so very much more influenced by a, an individualistic kind of libertarian outlook on something like women's rights Um Women's rights is not necessarily focused on until very recently on the right, um, in large part because I think it, it there was a an a, assumption or understanding that women um, that that it that it is sufficient for women to be treated um, strictly legally equally um, in, in a lot of different regards, and then we leave up to the social realm to. Um, kind of order and control, if you will, the roles and expectations placed on men and women. But legally, it's it's just all well and good if if there's uh, strict legal equality going on between the sexes. And I think now recently, the right is waking up and realizing that if we don't talk about women as a unique, specific class and group of people with unique needs uh, and challenges, based on being women, um, then we're facing the, uh, an actual breakdown of, I think, rational law and stable society. Okay. We're already in the deep end, so you mind if I <laughs> flesh this sure. out a little bit? Um, to what extent should justice be blind to class? To what extent should justice see and evaluate class? And then how do we make sure that class 
doesn't become uh, politicized uh, by making the law favor classes rather than being strictly blind. And I know blind is an ideal, so it's probably not uh, ever been real that anything's ever blind, let alone the law. But Well, if there is such a thing as blindness, then, then I think it's also very possible and reasonable and desirable to analyze who benefits from that blindness. You know, that, that's a little bit John Rawls of me, but uh, I think there is something to that. Um, it, because if there's a very predictable pattern and, and outcome of, of understanding who benefits from not taking into account group characteristics, much less individual characteristics or needs, um, then, then I think that's, that opens up being worth a discussion of where universality of application of law has to remain the, the vision, the ideal, the, the, the starting point, and when an adjustment to that pure universality is warranted. And I think that's what the liberal enlightenment project over the last couple hundred years has, has actually made a lot of good progress toward. Lauren, what were your thoughts? Yeah, well, so when I think of it as members of a class, we, I, there's there's only so much benefit I get from other people being able to have their rights assured, right? So when you measure it by groups, um, looking at women specifically, um, looking at the the universal rights, civil liberties and things like that, those baseline things, those are not, you can't measure that with groups. You can't measure that, you know, women as a group are able to exercise these rights in this certain amount of way. It really get, does come down to the individual with that. Um, in terms of justice, I don't know if you mean the, the justice system uh, specifically. Um, I think that needs to be mostly blind to demographics, but then there's just realities too. Um, looking at the justice system specifically, I, I think about criminal justice and they they treat young offenders differently than older offenders um, and not just teenagers, but they'll, they literally will look at a 20 year old much differently than a 40 year old committing the same crime, um, with different things. And so I think if you say we're going to treat every individual as if they are exactly the same, that is not justice. But I also think that um, there's a really fine line between doing that and taking into account generalities um, hmm. I was going to say more too about the the, lab, the radical feminist label. Basically, um, I think that it I have some discomfort with it only because it obviously means such different things to different people, and so I prefer to be vague about it just so that um, I don't feel like it misrepresents, you know. Hmm my stance on things, but I've, in my time at Wolf, I will say I, you know, meeting so many wonderful feminist women who are not really tied to obviously liberal feminism, but also just the mainstream ideas. There's a, I've met so many women with like a real deep respect for the constitution and for due process and for really just evidence-based, rational, reason-based kind of policy and law. And so that has done a lot to shape my 
um, you know, my view of the law in this area and in women's rights. And I, um, women like Candace and lots of other women who are more either in the center or on the right have really helped me feel, just really see the balance of where some things need to be conserved versus there's things that need progress on. Like there's not an ideology that really fits anything. Like no one's really kind of got it all right. Except me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if if you can prove it in a court of law, then I I suppose so. We'll see. Lauren, how did you get into law? What what pushed you in that direction? Do you come from a long pedigree of lawyers and attorneys? No, um, no, I, uh, I, I like to argue and be right. And so, um, it was often joked upon that I should go to law school and I got my bachelor's in political science and environmental studies. And I was kind of interested in that. And then I was interested in labor and employment. Um, and I ended up graduating into the recession from with my bachelor's and I worked as a CNA for a couple of years and then I hated it. And so, uh, I was like, let me just see how I do on my LSATs. And I did great. And so, I went to law school and still wasn't sure what I wanted to do exactly. And I've done a lot of stuff since then. So, um, what's a CNA? Oh, certified nursing assistant. Okay. That's why I was, I yeah. figured the end. I worked with adults nursing. with disabilities, like did home care. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you both working on and how did you get to, uh, concretize, uh, like this partnership? Yeah, well, we've been we've been working together for a year and a half or more on a particular lawsuit in California challenging placing men into women's prisons there. So it it was working through that lawsuit that, you know, kind of started then recent conversations along the lines of, you know, there are a lot of inquiries that come into Wolf that need to be handled that maybe don't match up with. Uh, a nonprofit's um, ability to do that. There are, uh, I, I've been volunteering with Genspect, and so I've been trying hard for months to, you know, network with uh, attorneys and, and match, say, detransitioners uh, and parents up with uh, lawyers who are willing to challenge schools and challenge therapists and so forth. And so finally, it just seemed to coalesce um, into, you know, um, let's let's really think about if we're seeing this kind of need out there, why shouldn't we be the ones that jump out and and try to meet some of that need? We need more female attorneys. We need more women's rights attorneys. We need more just, you know, heterodox attorneys right now to, to specifically jump out into the space of saying, we're willing to go against the narrative. We want to help restore uh, a sane and rational uh, view to law starting with the basic facts that five minutes ago we all understood and took for granted um, so th- so that we can we can make some progress toward um, I think getting back on track with um, e- equality not you know, equality between the sexes um, parental rights in school in public schools was getting a little off kilter so I think there there are a lot of a lot of ways in which the the gender war is kind of emblematic and front and center and and a necessary current prioritized phase and step 
in order to, I, I think, have a hope of, of good progress uh, for, for just about any, any other group going forward. Yeah, I think this, this realization sort of through discussion and kind of our own observations that there was a need for something like this happened alongside, you know, Candace was realizing the stuff that she was doing, working on the Chandler case and other stuff on this area was really what she wanted to be doing full time instead of working at a firm doing other stuff full time. And me realizing that I really liked doing the direct legal services more so and wanting to provide that. Um, and it's something just that makes me feel more energized. It's a really hard subject area to do work in. It's can be very demoralizing. And so kind of getting my hands dirty a little bit and getting the weeds with it is really find it very motivating so so okay so the you brought up a lot of different areas that need attention there's women or males and female prisons there's uh school uh, the how the schools are dealing with parents and children there's how doctors are held accountable or not held accountable for possible medical malpractice um, so those are three different areas. And then there's defining woman in law on the state level, on the federal level. So this is a huge free speech, free speech, um, Employment law. free speech on, uh, and then you're, you're looking at section two thirty. you're looking at, uh, private versus public online speech, right? So <laughs> like, where do you even begin? Um, or are you guys at, um, uh, this point kind of making a map and then organizing services so that you can pair, uh, you know, uh, clients with. Attorneys yeah. And stuff. What I'd say we started with, um, well, we already have clients. We already have, you know, cases that we start out with and then others that have joined up in the last month. Um, but I think part of it is us sitting down and realizing or figuring out what our, collective areas that we can do from a technical perspective. And then there's a lot of other things that being sort of subject matter experts are in a position to be helpful to other legal professionals or other, you know, um, school districts or people who just need and people or entities who need help getting guidance, um, not necessarily in a particular subject area, but on this issue. So I think that's part of it and then it's just seeing what comes in all of that it um where right now um i think a lot of family law attorneys are are um taken by surprise at the gender issue and how it has swept through the system to the point where it, it is a real uphill battle for any non-affirming parent to retain custody and visitation those kinds of issues right now. And so that's just one example where directly and through um, consulting with um, uh, other attorneys, we would like to help, you know, bring the legal system up to speed in, in that area in terms of, well, 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 wait a minute, this, this isn't all just consensus toward affirmation going on here. You know, here, here is the pushback that's going on. Here is the skepticism and the questions that are legitimately raised by experts and, and by parents and so forth. And so trying to bring some balance into 
legal areas um, like family law and what's going on with uh, child protective services, things like that. So uh, where, where's the priorities uh, right now? Just to get a little bit more concrete, I guess there's case by case, there's databasing, there's finding precedent, getting up the word. Well, one of the big ones is prisons because we do have um, Candace and I are still counsel on Chandler, the lawsuit. And, and that's in California? That still, mm-hmm. okay. And it's most, many states are, are adopting similar rules with or without the legislation to go along with it, or whether it's just administrations being like, well, this is how we're going to do it. Um, you know, because p- part of the math that's going on is that uh, in most areas, and incarceration is very much true, um, men are much more likely to complain to make grievances, to sue, than women are. It's just very much the case, uh, anecdotally and just what you see. And then, so if you are a prison administrator trying to figure out the balance of rights between you know, safety and rights and who's gonna complain, who's gonna sue you, it's a lot easier choice to make. And we wanna make that a more difficult choice. So you know, at its core for prisons and, and other things like that, but we wanna see we want to see the slow, slow or stop the spread of these policies, right, into new areas, into new places. So there's that. And then obviously um, the medical and the mental health profession with, uh, with regards to these harmful medical interventions on people, especially children. Um, those are two big ones. So is it uh, is it a tactic uh, of uh, establishing disincentivizing forces, like uh, preparing the groundwork for people being held accountable or institutions having to pay concretely, and then that will cause them to uh, be wary of going forward? Is that? Yeah, that that's definitely a tactic because you know I think for the last half decade or so institutions uh, corporations schools um have have really only had in their ear the the lgbtq activist side and the aclu side that is saying if you don't push the law further than it even is right now if you don't do these things as best practices We'll sue, we'll sue you. You will be sued. It's very dangerous for you not to go this direction. And that's been very successful. And I, there just has not been um, a, 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 co- a concerted pushback to let schools and institutions know that the reality is they're, they're kind of on a razor's edge. That's just where it is right now. Things are unsettled enough that they're, they're probably very likely to get sued no matter which direction they go. But they should know that there's a dual risk going on. Hmm. Uh, so would it come down to which is the bigger bully if if they're maybe so uh you know a mental health therapist should should be thinking twice you know am i going to get charged with discrimination um for refusing to affirm and wanting to explore um talk therapy solutions and not write a surgery letter or, or a hormone letter um, am I going to get sued and attacked and complained about because of that? Ah, maybe if I rush this, you know, 17 year old or even 19 year old down this path, and I haven't explored a lot with this person, but I just take them at their word and send them on this path and they get their double mastectomy or they, you know, a- am I going to have issues, you know, two years from now? 
maybe they need to be they need to be thinking about both of those sides and it's insurance companies too i mean the truth is we're seeing this with um with laws restricting abortion is you have you see doctors and hospitals who are like oh like they want to they do not want their people to get charged they've got malpractice insurance saying we're not going to do this and I hate making that comparison or anything but i mean the because that's not a good thing from my perspective at all it's a very bad thing but it's you know that if if you have malpractice insurance telling these doctors and telling these professionals that they can't do certain things or can't do it in a certain way or if they do it in a certain way it's not covered under the policy that's going to change practices so how are insurance companies held accountable then what's the interface between law and insurance companies if you file a malpractice claim they're going to call their insurance company and i think we're finding out from a lot of detransitioners that that insurance companies are are getting a bit of a free pass right now that's another angle that we want that we want to try to course correct on because as to detransitioners for you would think that insurance companies would have would, would be want, motivated to hit the brakes on on gender transition procedures uh, just for cost. They're you know right mm -hmm. stereotype of the big bad insurance company is they want to cut everybody off from everything that they possibly can and save a save a nickel. Right? For some reason, that has not really been the case. There's been quite a bit of of voluntary, not even having to be pulled through law to do it to to go ahead and cover. A lot of these procedures and yet insurance companies were seen with detransitioners feel perfectly entitled to throw in the obstacles and throw up the brakes toward anybody who wants to look at any kind of reversal reconstruction different pathway i no longer have a gender identity but now i have very specialized complicated medical needs going on you need to help me out here and insurance companies are are very too freely um making that uh, very difficult for, for detransitioners. That seems odd. So there's the profit motive, which has been um, hinted at and covered by various specifically radical feminists or feminists themselves bringing up pharmacological um, profit motive behind gender uh, medicine. But if it's all footed by the insurance companies, then it just seems like the math wouldn't work out for them long term to hook up a whole bunch of young people to lifelong medicalization that then has to be paid for by someone through them, right? So uh, that that's a really interesting piece of this whole thing to me is um, there, I mean, there are legal, you know, rules about that that have come up about having to cover certain things, but in general, as Kim said, it has been mostly voluntary. And I think it it is clearly related to some of the social cultural side of it. And I can't explain it. And it's very weird. I can't think of any other examples of something like that happening in that way, but. Well, I guess, okay. So just sh shooting from the hip, uh, these insurance companies get woke cred of some sort, get some sort of social uh, cred for uh, being affirming, and then they get to fly the different rainbow flags or all these different kinds of flags and say that we are representing these, we're on board, and so they get social cachet or um, status. No, that's true. I wonder if, because it's related to the corporate thing, is you have these large corporations who are purchasing 
policies for their employees. And I suppose they're probably getting feedback from their employees that they want those type of things covered. Um, I worked at on a tech company and they offered all kinds of interesting things. They offered up to $50,000 per uh, surrogacy if you've got a surrogate to pay for, um, which, you know, again, it's from the perspective of people want it, but from their perspective, they'd much rather pay a chunk for you to have someone else carry a baby than the, the risk of losing out on an employee having to, you know, have health issues or productivity issues related to their own pregnancy. But, um, I, I think that the, the, the gender, the gender stuff is, it, it's an, it's an ideology and a, a motivator that um, it it makes looking at the financial gains and channels. Um, I think just a one dimensional thing. This, this it, is there money to be made? Is there money being made off of this? Of course, yes. It was it's wonderful for big pharma to find an, an entirely new, huge, never-ending, potentially infinite market for for its drugs, and it's great for surgeons to have, you know, more expensive, complicated, very much in need of of multiple procedure surgeries to be able to perform uh, at the state's expense, at an insurance company's expense, or much less if somebody can can walk in and pay for it, and it's all socially supported and and encouraged that that's great for them too so so the money factor is there but i don't think that that is the the tipping point i don't think that that is what has pushed a a false consensus within the medical system of the u.s and and many other countries and that's the other that's the other thing that you can tell is that other countries are, are not as susceptible to the profit motive in, in their medical industries as the united states is and yet gender ideology and affirmation only has swept through um, countries regardless of, of how single payer or socialized or free market um, their, their healthcare system is. So the profit motive is not the only thing going on. It, it very much has been, um, I think, a, a capture and, a, and a, an incentive placed on people within the medical industries um, to uh, to, to jump on board uh, a, a social trend and a social movement that provides not, not so much even a financial cachet and not just the social cachet of look what a good person I am, but almost this plays into the savior complex on a personal level. I am now invested in saving a person, maybe, you know, particularly a young person, um, and that comes from the way that that the the notions about gender and the and the, the the concepts behind it have have come in through the vehicles of uh, civil rights, minority rights, um, individual autonomy and empowerment, equity and inclusion, um, and, and that that's that's a feel good uh, mm-hmm. channel. Mm-hmm. So, can we? Could you walk me through the mechanics of how an insurance company would be corrected in this manner? So I, I assume that there's these things called a malpractice suit. How does that go through? Is there a certain court that people go through? And I know it varies by state, but just. 
Yeah, it's almost always in the general civil court of, of the state. Uh, there might be special procedural rules and limits that apply just to medical malpractice or professional malpractice like that. Like the time limits to bring this lawsuit, the types and amounts of damages that can even potentially be recovered, requirements about um, needing to have expert testimony to establish what the standard of care was and whether there was a breach of that standard of care. So rules like that would, would be a little bit specialized. Um, but but generally, it's like any other lawsuit in that sense. The insurance companies would, would come into play there by it. it only if they were on the hook to to pay for the defense and any any judgments against the medical professionals or mental health professionals who are being sued. The other way to go after insurance companies directly uh, that, that we're, we're exploring is, um, um, you know, most of them have uh, administrative complaint systems that are overseen by um, um, agencies within the state. Um, so state to state, there, there's some oversight of insurers in that way. Um, at, at some point, if things are if things line up in, in the right way, the traditional lawsuit directly against your own insurance company for treating you badly, it could be a, a bad faith um, insurance claim saying that you know, an insurance company owed me a, a fiduciary responsibility. It acted in its own best interest instead of mine. Um, and and then you can have a, a direct lawsuit against the insurance company, not against who they were providing insurance uh, to in terms of your providers. So sorry, this is all against the backdrop, too, of of pressures going in the other direction. So we've got, you know, talking about individuals fighting back in their capacity, but we've got um, the the Federal Department of Health and Human Services currently has proposed rules that would uh, overturn the existing rules and would make it uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Gender identity is obviously the one that is more relevant for this to discriminate in medicine. And they're not just talking about, you know, people getting turned away from the ER. They're talking about if you are a pediatric endocrinologist who works with sick kids with endocrine issues and you can't refuse to prescribe puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones to a child with diagnosed gender dysphoria because it's discriminatory. Or if you are a doctor who does mastectomies and you specialize in that and you work with breast cancer patients, you can't refuse to do it for someone with dysphoria. And so they are looking to make that um, a violation of federal law to make those choices. And so at that point, then you have someone suing them for doing it. You might, you almost end up um getting less into the should it be covered should it not be and more into the granularity of like is it meeting these standards but there are no current standards and then you also have like the equality act i know you've I'm sure you've heard of that um but that is another area um where it would consider medical services including insurance companies um, and mental health providers uh discrimination would be the same thing to not provide affirming care um, would be considered a violation of federal law for that as well. And so, so this federal law um, to make it discriminatory, um, that's coming from the executive branch or legislative? It's uh, the proposed rulemaking. Okay. It's coming from the executive branch. The Equality Act has been um, bandied about in the, on the legislative side. 
Okay. So how would it um, occur that the federal government, uh, the executive branch, gets to mandate uh, medical care? That's the Affordable through... Care Act, for starters. Okay, yeah. so the Affordable the, Care the, Act... The regulatory, the rulemaking, proposed rulemaking is amending the Affordable Care Act, yeah. Okay, so um, uh, the Affordable Care Act is a blanket set of rules that applies across the United States that everybody well, has to obey. Yes, I mean, it updates. Um, it, it applies to people in, in a very narrow way, individuals, but, but you know, largely when it comes to how states are supposed to administer things is where the impact will, will be had most, most significantly. Um, it, when it comes to why would gender services be covered because of the ACA, it's, it's the anti-discrimination provisions of that law. So the, the ACA did what it did in terms of, of controlling what insurers have to cover. It's the, but it didn't, it didn't set forth a specific mandate regarding, regarding, uh, gender transition. That is coming out of the ACA claiming that it was it's really just making it, it's really just solidifying and making sure that that uh, federal civil rights uh, non-discrimination laws that we're all familiar with and that have been around for a long time are, are definitely, definitely, definitely going to apply to how insurers and, and providers uh, do things. So. Don't be, you know, it, it's just incorporating and referencing back to things like Title IX and Title VI uh, to say, you know, race and ethnicity and national origin and sex and, and so forth are grounds for discrimination that we're, we're just going to keep a very close eye on and make sure that that's not what's occurring in healthcare. But like Lauren is saying, what, what's happening is a, a conceptual stretch and flip of the very concept of what is discrimination. That's what's happening um, every which way, every place where the law is incorporating gender identity alongside of, of sex as a characteristic. And, and what it, it's not even the problem of listing that vague characteristic called gender identity, which never gets a definition and is somehow related to sex and somehow not. Um, the bigger problem legally is what, what gets assumed to be discrimination. You could say, um, you know, don't be punitive to somebody. Don't be hateful to them. Don't don't, you know, like Lauren said, kick them out of the ER just because they claim a gender identity. Great. Fair. I don't think any of us would even have a, would have a problem with that. It's a little again, a little disturbing when the law doesn't define something properly. But uh, but that that's probably going to be workable. It's, it's saying that we're going to call it illegal discrimination to fail to validate, to fail to cater to an individual's subjective description or desire or demand. And they say, activists do say that they're, they either say or they imply that they're trying to do that. Like, like someone's going to walk in and they're not going to get insulin prescribed for their diabetes, but they actually point to the complaints that have actually been made under this provision and it's it's not that it's all it's all dead naming and misgendering and didn't get to whatever it's it's that kind of stuff um and so it really they're it's right so if if stating 
becomes illegal discrimination, we think that's an, we think that's a big problem. You know, if it becomes discrimination, illegal to state someone's sex, especially in a medical context, that that that's problematic. So like an ER, yeah, kind of thing that is being um, lumped in under look look at all of the discrimination in healthcare that needs to stop. Okay, so but, if a state of su- sufficient power, let's say Florida, says gender identity doesn't exist, we do not believe in it, 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 it has no basis in fact, and we're not going to uh, cater to it, then the federal government, and I think there's overtures of this, will punish Florida somehow for that. The federal government would have to enforce this on the state if a state decided to opt out right and would that That be one way a state could do it or the state could be sued by their own citizens um, or entities within the state to enforce the federal provisions um there were 20 states that sued the biden administration over that executive order that applied bostock to these other areas and they actually issued a preliminary injunction in that case uh for title seven and title nine so that it doesn't apply to, or I'm sorry, not Title Seven overall, but the um, the part of Title Seven that has like sex separated bathrooms, locker rooms, dress codes, bona fide occupational qualifications, et cetera. Um, and so almost half of all states, it's not in force uh, for now, but they're doing rulemaking on that as well. So that'll be a whole nother fight when that so comes up. I'm I'm not a lawyer. I don't even play one on YouTube. But um, so could we walk through that? Like, uh, so twenty Biden administration issued an executive order. Uh, this was the gender order. It was like day one, right? Day one, and, and then it was what followed the, up with guidance about six months later. The what's Department guidance? of Justice, Department of Education issued so, guidance that backed up that executive order and said it is definitely our policy. <laughs> workplaces and in educational environments sex includes anything that says don't discriminate based on sex includes gender identity and further again there's this is the discrimination problem not only must you not discriminate based on gender identity but it is discrimination to fail to affirm gender identity even with respect to any kind of of uh sex separated space or activity so what's the legal recourse for the states? So the states sue, who do they, how do they sue? How do you sue the federal government as a state? They sued, well, they filed a suit. Um, who was the defendant, Candace? Was it the... They, they sued... The Biden? They sued, yeah, they sued um, the education department directly. Labor, too? Because wasn't it the EEOC, the other... Yeah. I should know this. Um, but who who do yeah, they bring the suit to? Like the federal, yeah. uh, they filed in federal court. In federal court, yep. Saying the federal government has not ha- has issued a new interpretation of an existing law that goes way beyond the scope of that existing law. They didn't even bother to get public notice and and input before they did this through their guidelines. So it needs to be suspended. It needs to be. Um, temporarily halted, and and finally a judge agreed with that and and has halted it. Um, well, and and in each of those states, they had a state law um, properly passed by their elected representatives, which directly contradicted the guidance. And so 
that's the controversy that was brought before the court was they literally can't enforce their own state laws without following or without violating this guidance. And this guidance is nothing. It doesn't have, it's a piece of paper, basically. Now it's a piece of paper where they can absolutely use it to punish you and come after you. But in terms of having the, the same force of law as a law passed by an elected body, um, it's there's no comparison, basically. And especially when you have something like most of them, I think, are sports laws that have to do with it. And it's really unclear where federal versus state jurisdiction lays anyway, right? So even if there was uh, a different kind of mismatch there, it's it would still be having to decide those two things. But the fact is, is that, I mean, they literally are directing them to do two different things. And so the court recognized that while the rest of the case is being heard, they needed to be able to enforce their own state laws. And so they put that on hold for them. So just again, I'm totally ignorant in this area. So there's this federal court system and then there's this department of justice. What's the power relationship between the department of justice and the federal courts? Can the department, who, who has more power? Who, who's sovereign? They're, I mean, they're in, they're in separate branches of government, right? So when you look department at justice's executive branch, from a checks and balances point of view, in a in a in a way, it, it you would ha you should be saying equal power because when the DOJ is acting in its appropriate role, um, defending the executive branch, prosecuting and implementing laws on behalf of the executive branch, being sort of the whole executive branch's lawyer, when it's doing that role as it should be doing it, as it, it, then then you know it. It, it prevails if it's in its lane. The check and balance is that the federal judiciary is set up with um, independent judges who have lifelong tenure and supposedly don't have to be influenced by who currently is in charge of the executive branch or who's running Congress, right? It's supposed to be this independent third branch. And so when they are in their lane, and that was that was from the beginning of our country established as they they get to they're the ones that get to interpret what the Constitution means. Um, so if the executive branch is stepping outside uh, of um, of constitutional bounds, then it should be able to be reined in by the the judicial branch, the federal judicial branch. That's how it should work. Well, yeah, theoretically, but power gets mucky. So the federal branch, let's just take sports. If the states don't do what the federal branch, yeah. the executive branch yeah. wants, then the executive branch can, I, I, I'm just supposing, can do two basic things. One, deny funding and two, mm -hmm. uh, requisition uh, assets, either not give assets or take assets, right? Basically. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, under a law like Title IX, the federal the federal executive branch is is kind of limited to at some point terminating funding. Congress is free to pass laws that are more direct than that that don't just attach strings and commands to funding, but make outright commands and prohibitions. If if that's done under circumstances where Congress is allowed to do that, you know, under its Commerce Clause power, for example as opposed to under its spending clause power. Um, so 
if there is a clash, um, a direct conflict, federal law is is supposed to prevail. But I guess, you know, so it's, if it's a state law versus federal law, they conflict and the state challenges the federal government. That is where the, the judiciary, the federal judges are supposed to break that tie. This is one of those basic things. You're talking about basic principles of what we do. It federal versus state versus local versus individual. Um, and then the different branches of federal and state and all of this. This is like basically where we work. Mm-hmm. for anything we're doing it's it's kind of in this intersection between these things it's 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 not easy to follow especially if you don't do it every day and mm-hmm. and it changes all the time and well if we look at the behavior of the executive branch right now and not mm-hmm. to get too political but watching the FBI there was just a story where the FBI the LA Times of all places um, issued a story that the FBI's just drilled through a bunch of private uh, uh, bank accounts and stuff. Uh, the raid of Mar-a-Lago, don't want to get into it, but we see the um, the law enforcement being used politically. Now, whether it's justified or not, it still sets a precedent that we don't know what's the restraint on the Department of Justice. What's the restraint on the FBI? Um, so I said that the FBI, uh, the, Fed, the Fed can deny funding, maybe take funding, but it also can put you in jail if you're not doing what you want or if you're not thinking <laughs> what they want or if you're questioning, um, let's say, election results. So that's happening over in this political sphere, Republicans versus Demo- Democrats. But I think it does translate into gender care, into health care by we see this pit bull of the DOJ enforcing um, without the consent of the governed um, it just seems really scary. So, <laughs> um, I guess you guys, as I, I know you're both, uh, well, at least one of you is radical feminists and I apologize for using the word guys. Uh, that's just a California thing. So I apologize. No. If that's offensive. <laughs> but you two are, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> you're both, um, getting in the weeds, right? Um, mapping out. I'm sorry. I need a drink of water. So um, to put that in context, from an outsider's point of view, it looks really scary. The environment looks really scary, but you guys are right up in there in the law organizing and and petitioning and stuff like that. So where is the, I guess, the hope or the gains to be made or when we organize the playing field with regards to gender, uh, sports, prisons, health care? What are some of the uh, things that we can stand on? Here's some here's here's some of my optimism, some of my hope. Um, I, I think uh, for for one thing, there has not yet been much in terms of volume in in the U.S. in in terms of just starting to flood the courts with pushback, just simple pushback. It comes back to language, lawyers being willing mm-hmm. to use plain, clear, understood language. Um, you know, d- not cowing, not being fearful, not being defensive about about saying the- these are men, these are women, and these are why th- these are the reasons why it makes a whole lot of sense, and for a long time has actually been upheld to give women this kind of privacy or this kind of safety or this kind of protection. 
um, and just say it <laughs> because for several years now, the toe in the water kind of sort of either you couldn't find legal representation to try, you know, to push this at all um, or, or there or it was only with a lot of apology. Well, I'm kind of you know, very sorry to even have to be saying it this way, but really, couldn't we find maybe a way to soften? Blah, blah. Ah, so there needs to be just a little bit more. I, I don't think we can say that we're defeated in lawfare around this until and unless we've got a good pattern of, of even of even pushing it and getting court records um, out there with briefings that that, you know, spell things out and call in, um, wit you know, witnesses and, and experts and so forth and just start building these cases. Um, if we can make it past first hoops. The next big round of optimism that I take for the U.S. is what I see over in the U.K., that a couple of their big trials, once you can get somebody from our opposition, the pro-gender crowd, once you can get them on the stand where they have to answer, mm -hmm. it is embarrassing for them. It is weird. It is unusual. <laughs> courtroom drama the the level of self-contradiction and and lack of coherence and just it, it is odd and that gets exposed so the more that we can push past initial stages of any kind of lawsuit where the essence of what's going on and what the problem is 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 a theory of gender identity versus a fact of sex wherever that is the the the, the heart of the legal issue that's going on the more that that can be exposed so that people who are, are have been able to push this through totally behind the scenes have to sit there and try to answer questions that that the public can can be witness to okay we got the, the aclu in chandler in our california prison case uh saying that they're denying our allegations that men and women are different and that there are there are Wait, did they do this in a brief or on the stand? No, on the brief. No, it's their lawyers. Could, I'll send it to you. It's to, beautiful. To, it's horrible. So, so the story is that there, you made a complaint, yeah. basically that men and women are different. That was one of many things we said. Yeah, and yeah. they denied the existence yeah. of a sex category. Yes, meaningful sex. Yeah, they said that there was no. I don't have in front of me. Basically, that there was no factors that separate men as a class from women as a class. Uh, we were arguing in the context of there's a reason why we have men's and women's prisons. Yeah. Um, they have not yet come back and said, actually, come to think of it, we think sex is a dumb way to split it up. No, they want they want sex separated prisons with their special fancy exceptions. Oh, okay. So okay. So in physical reality, there's men and women, but let's just leave that off the table. In legal reality, there's sure. men's prisons and women's prisons. Mm -hmm. The ACLU in California doesn't want to make everything unisex. They still want to keep those categories, but allow bleed. That's right. Between. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. That is the pattern um, just about everywhere you can think of. There, there okay. I had that weird, you know, the Atlantic article recently. For for the most part, yeah, sports. No, for the most part, the pro gender crowd is not calling for 
um, co-ed sports, right? They are calling to leave everything the same in terms of having a women's team versus a, you know, a men's team. They just want access to those teams. Because it's not about inclusion. It's about validation and affirmation. It's not about, I want to, you know, eliminate visible differences as much as possible. So everyone feels comfortable, which I would object to being compelled to do anyway, but it's not even that it's that we want to maintain these things. We're going to take what used to be female and we're going to call it the feminine crowd. Doesn't matter if you don't want to be feminine, Candace. Okay. So you're still going to be over there if you want to be over there. Um, and if you're not over there, we're going to put you over there with the, the masculine. It used to be men, but now it's masculine. That's where you're going to go if you don't want to be there. Um, but we have to have, you know, it's going to be purely based on, you know, how much you like stereotypes. We had this in, I did a, a amicus brief for Wolf last year for um this beauty pageant case and it was where this in oregon uh-huh yeah it was uh anita green versus the miss united states of america um this delusional man he um he said he argued i just don't understand why they put this in writing and think that they sound good um but he literally said that he thought that he was a woman because he was stereotypically feminine. He used that phrase a few times. Um, and no one seemed to see the issue with this, that defining like female by being stereotypically feminine. You had the National Center for Lesbian Rights write a brief in his favor. Mm. Then again, there's a woman who identifies as a straight man who is their legal director. So. Uh, but b- b- is she a lesbian? She's married to a woman, but okay. she identifies as a straight man. So, but she's, she's representing a lesbian. and male as you, presumably are. Okay, okay. <laughs> Sorry, back to the headache. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been. The, the, My point the, is, is they need the stereotypes. They yeah. need to do away yeah. with the sex distinctions, and they need, and it. So that's that's where they hate the radical feminists because. We're like, let's keep the sex distinctions. It totally makes sense. Um, and let's do away with anything else that's not. And they want to do the opposite. They want to pretend yep. everybody's exactly the same and that there's categories of people who are feminine, masculine, and other, which is everybody. Yeah. Really. So I object so to that. Back to that sports issue mm-hmm. where they want to keep, or even prisons, they want to keep these two categories but they want to apply bleed they want to give a special category so what in effect that means is that trans rights are special rights these are special mm-hmm. human beings yeah. these are transcendent human beings they, well, they, yeah. they they're super supernal to the through the law over everybody else and and you can't even I, you can't even say trans people get special rights because to me you, you got to walk that back. What what who are the trans people, right? How do we know who who is? It's all men. Who are the trans? Right? Who who we really know are which the trans people? people. That that's a problem that goes that goes back to this very characteristic or categorization of a group of people is so individualized it is so subjective there is no there is intentionally no allowance of having any measurable uh reference point any any objective reference point to look to to say oh got it okay these are the trans people 
and let's figure out how what they need. There's, it is uh, porous, to say the least, that they morph us. Who is in that cat? I could be in that category if I wanted to. No, no you, problem. You are wearing shoulder pads, which, uh, yes. and it's it's 2022, so that. So obviously, femme, you know, when Lauren says they need um, both, they actually need the sex binary to stay in existence. They won't admit that outright. They don't like to say it that way, but that's very clear because, again, they don't they don't want to they don't want to collapse the sex distinctions and and categories in spaces and activities. They want to keep them. They the they also very much need though the the stereotypes that society builds around the sexes. They they need to hold on to those because they're not actually calling to redesignate uh sports you know here's the feminine team and here's the masculine team mm -hmm. they need they need the combination it is a sex binary even though they don't like talking about it that way so the presumption is is still going to remain that females go here males go here it's now a question of the crossover because of adherence to stereotypes that adherence to stereotypes is the justification essentially for for validating your feeling of wanting um, to, to, to switch over. And yes, it is special rights, not any kind of equal rights, because it is requiring a self-selecting, self-chosen, anytime I want exemption from generally applicable, neutral, factual rules. Well, I, I spoke with Linda Blade uh, way too long ago. I have to have her back on. She's a sports coach, like top mm -hmm. of her class, a sports coach. And she brought up an um, I guess an incident where in the same kind of uh, Olympic competition where there's a bunch of sports, it wasn't the Olympics, but there was a bunch, it was a big sports meet. One man identified a f as a female in one category and a male as another category. So he was able to, to, yeah, stunning um, to say the least. So let's, I, I wonder if it's possible to steel man this. If, through gender identity, that's the path that the law is taking to cement these stereotypes. How would they make that concrete? Like what? Self-ID. Okay. So self-ID, and that is based on, I guess, self-determination. Is that, and that would derive from what law? Like from yeah. the legal point of view, how would you build the case for the existence of gender identity? Build the case for re legal recognition of gender identity. I, I think I would hide behind, um, and some laws use this as a separate phrase, I would hide behind gender expression. Mm. And claim that all we're really trying to get at mainly is making sure that people feel free to express themselves and aren't weirdly punished for not fitting into boxes. So how I, ex you know, gender in the sense of how I choose to express being female. Um, now it's just, uh, you know, that 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 is a good thing. That's been recognized in sex discrimination law for, you know, for, for decades. That it's not just about we're going to treat males and females differently, but it might be in the sense of holding males or females to certain uh, stereotyped expectations that that in and of itself is a form of sex discrimination that sounds fine so then it's just a little bit of a leap right to say that um 
my desire to express my gender actually determines or changes my sex. Okay, so it, it starts with freedom of expression, and then it goes to um, uh, acceptance of that expression, right? So th there's the expression that somebody's sending out into the world, and then there's the recognition by other people. And the law is able to enforce how people recognize other people? I, I don't. I think this is this is a new thing that's going on right now where, yes, the law is attempting to um, to enforce how people perceive or express their perception of other people. And there is and, and all of that is now against a backdrop of you're not you're not allowed to start from a, a factual premise. You're not allowed to start from any kind of shared, accepted, um, neutral statement of fact. This is a male human being. This is a female human being. That, that's where we're starting. Now, are we going to make demands of, despite the, that fact, are we now going to make a demand of some kind of accommodation or compelled expression of belief contrary to where we know we started from factually? We're seeing this play out. I, I mean, SB 132 in California is a great example because they crafted that law in such a way as to, I guess, accept gender identity in the broadest way possible. Um, and I look at, there's um, a man who was transferred over who's done some very depraved things to women who have been locked up with him. And he... Uh, has been described as being comfortable with any pronouns. So one of the transgender law center's own witnesses for this individual, so someone who believes he should still be in the women's prison, believes in the trans thing, refers to him as he, him in, in their declaration, in this witness statement. And then they go on to refer to him as she, her in their brief post-truth he's comfortable with any pronouns so there's nothing wrong with them saying she her right just because he goes by he him to everyone who's locked up with him okay so it's one thing for the law to be blind it's another thing for the law to be cross-eyed <laughs> like it just seems like we're like you're seeing double at that point like there's it just seems really messy um just to scan um what's going on or who they're so that's where they about. get you though because then now you're at that point and now the simplest thing is to just accept people for who they are. Boom, we can move on with our day, right? Like that's, now you don't have to figure it out anymore. You can just give in and just people so, are who they say they are. There's, there, there's a, oh, sorry, Candace. This is, this is why it, it, to me, one of the primary um, tactics in, in legal action around gender identity needs to be working very hard to have gender identity as a, as a theory, as a set of beliefs put into at least the same legal bucket as, as uh, religious or spiritual beliefs, because that way the sincerity isn't an issue. The, the, the subjectivity and having to pierce through 
um, it isn't an issue. All that's at issue is your right to hold beliefs that either cannot be proved or even run counter to factual proof, but you have a right to hold those beliefs. And we, Especially, we, have, a pretty, we have a pretty good system for deciding to what extent is your is the importance to you of putting your beliefs into practice how far can can that be accommodated and must that be accommodated before we are going to say no there's a line somewhere where your right to put into practice your belief stops at at, at the the uh the right of other people not to be compelled to pretend to share your belief and to not make it purely subjectively your choice whether it is good for everybody else to allow you to exempt yourself from fact-based general rules like sex classifications. Uh, okay, this might be fruitful, it might not be. Uh, but let's say that you have a prison and they, it's in California. Most people are uh, probably just Christian, basically culturally Christian. And there's a few Muslims and a few Jews in the same prison. The Muslims and the Jews, uh, according to their religion, don't eat pork. The prison uh, is uh, gets really cheap pork, but in order to accommodate the dietary needs of this religious class, these two religious classes, they will uh, spend a little bit extra money to create halal food or kosher food or to allow for that. Or do they have to, to what degree does the prison have to completely overhaul its culinary um, runnings in order to serve 5% of the population? Right. And yeah, they, you know, not, I mean, surprisingly, to quite a to quite a large degree, I would I would I would say, and prison you know prison religious belief is is an area where you know the prison does have to put up a, a, a decent reason, usually more than just cost alone, to show why you can't accommodate a belief like a you know air length or regulation or a dietary regulation. The big difference I think is where the party being inconvenienced is the government versus another individual. So that's for me, a lot of my starting point is, is it costing the government extra money to get some halal food and some kosher food in there versus our, is my right to eat this food? Is it somehow, it, I don't know, just within that example, it means they don't have enough money to feed enough to the other people. Like, I don't know, it's like a goofy example, but just it's, it's it's a totally different analysis to me when it's financial and the burden is being borne by the people who are responsible for keeping them safe in aggregate. Um, hmm. Hmm. So is there the possibility in California for a third prison, a unisex or gender gender prison, prison of genders, gender diverse prison? Yeah, gender diverse prison. And would it be reasonable for the state to foot the bill for a third facility? If I worked for the attorney general's office, then what I would try and do now that there's been a lawsuit, because the Prison Rape Elimination Act forbids segregation of trans identified inmates, except via court order. So I would take this opportunity to ask them to order us to have a waiver to create a third space. That's what I would do if I was 
in the attorney general's office. So could you walk us through that? What's this uh, rape uh, clause? Personal Rape Elimination Act. Um, okay. It puts a set of rules in place uh, regarding having procedures and data collection and things like that. It applies to, it's a federal law, but it applies to federal and state facilities, it applies to jails, it applies to anywhere where people are criminally held um, by the state. And it, uh, so there's no private right of action. It's, it's just, uh, it, it's a mandate that goes with funding. So it's one of those things where, again, if you're not following it, then you lose your funding. Um, one of the rules, uh, regulations, this wasn't in the initial bill that was passed by Congress. It was later rulemaking by the agency, much less scrutiny. Um, but they, they said that you could not segregate um, inmates on the basis of transgender status, essentially. And from what I understand, the reasoning behind that is because, especially when you look at jails or smaller, smaller kind of holding facilities, prison. Yeah, you get yeah. smaller areas, smaller jurisdictions. Especially when you're talking about not recently, um, you could end up in a situation where someone's truly not safe. And the best way to keep them safe is to be in solitary for like 24 hours a day or with one other person. And so what they wanted to avoid, this is my generous reading of it, at least, um, that they wanted to avoid a situation in which the prison says, ah, can't keep them safe. So we're just going to lock them up, you know, throw away the key, whatever. Uh, it's putting and to that extent, putting the burden on them to create a safe environment for people. Big thumbs up for me. Right them trying to dump them in the women's prison is another example of them shirking that responsibility to keep men safe in the men's prisons. Um, so the regulation says that you can't have this separate facility wing unit, et cetera, um, unless it's via court order or settlement. So it just, okay. It seems like it's incoherent because if uh, the elimination of rape requires segregation, like you segregate rapists from non-rapists or rapies, whatever, right? You, you separate Ooh. people. But it's more complicated than that because so there's some real inconvenient demographic facts about prison rape. Um, and one of which is most victims are also perpetrators and most perpetrators are also victims. Could we do like little stick figures in my mind without getting too graphic? Yeah, 50% of victims of prison rape um, are sex offenders, and 50% of perpetrators of prison rape have been a victim of prison rape. Uh, okay. So, so keeping uh, uh, somebody... them safe doesn't keep them safe from each other. Like, keeping, you, you can't actually separate rapists from, what did you say, rapey? Yeah. Well, you... Is that, I don't know, grammatically. With two E's, not E-Y. <laughs> But okay, so uh, so what you're saying is uh, people who are put in prison due to uh, sex crime of some sort, mm -hmm. uh, they get in prison and then they get uh, sex crimed. They get raped in prison. Fifty percent of victims of prison rape are sex offenders, are serving time for sex offenses. Yeah. So that's like prior to prison, but also people who are raped in prison also rape other people in prison. Yeah. Just statistically. It's like 50%. It's a huge. So people look at um, like transgender identity as 
people talk about this as a huge risk factor for victimization. Um, it's nothing compared to sex offender status. Um, and there's a generous overlap in those two demographics as well. 48% of federal trans-identified male prisoners are sex offenders as well. And just this past year, the Department of Justice or the Bureau of Prisons finally started tracking uh, transgender status in perpetration. They've been tracking it in victim, which is how they knew it's so disproportionate, but they were anecdotally seeing an increase in the victimization or in the perpetration. So they finally started tracking it and they found that um, every single, in 2021, every single federal trans-identified male victim of prison rape is a sex offender, uh, according to their report. Is it the case that uh, there's prison justice, like criminals are punishing criminals for being sex offenders, right? Um, I, not, the answer is not no to that, but yeah. if you actually look at, um, on their website, they have their reports and they have case summaries uh, of all substantiated claims, which is a paragraph at most. It's a couple sentences, explains what happened, basically. Um, and it's it's not what we picture of, you know, some gang of men confronting a child molester and kind of dishing it out. It's, it's there's a lot of, I think, complexity psychosexually and all of that stuff that's playing into it and probably people who have been damaged since childhood and we don't know why it is but those numbers are playing out in california as well a third of the transfer requests are um, from the men's prison are from sex offenders as well and most of the most serious instances of harm that we are hearing reported against women in california are not from convicted sex offenders so it's uh, uh, okay. So again, just another cross-eyed. Sorry. Fact of I don't the make... law. So, what put some people? Say a man commits a sex crime. Yeah. And he's charged and then put in prison for sex. In prison, he says, "I I don't believe in sex. I believe in gender." And then the prison. Which prosecute or the, the the law which prosecuted this man for a sex crime now via the auspices of gender identity denies sex. It, it just it just doesn't follow. Like they, they they prosecute him for that and then they say it's not real anymore. I know I'm using sex kind of a, as a pun, the act versus the fact, but still. I don't have an answer other than I think that one of the reasons at the beginning you asked about the areas of interest, one of the reasons I think that prisons is such an important place to pay attention to this stuff is because not only is it being operated on much more quietly, you know, and implemented, and it's the most vulnerable group of people who literally can't do anything else. They're stuck there. But because there's these unique factors that we're seeing quite by accident, you know, um, just in our work of doing our investigations and learning things that there's something about the prison population specifically that, as far as I know, is not 
playing out in the general population. But uh, it's a very dangerous group of people, and we can't say that it's not. So, And yeah. thinking optically, let's say the ACLU is going to bat for transgender prisoners. Um, it seems mm -hmm. like that's a high cost if they are basically facilitate if if a transgender uh, if a male identifies as a woman gets placed in a female prison and then uh, does bad things to women and yeah. the aclu is facilitating that are they not culpable for the crimes that are committed um, absolutely they're culpable morally they're they're not even having to think along that line yet there is still um a ton of institutional support within the prison system right now in California to pretend and, and uh, not be willing to do anything to verify any problems with, with any of the male transfers. Okay. Um, so I don't think the ACLU. What's the incentive structure? Support on it. Okay. So, so, no accountability. Uh, so accountability uh, on a media level is one thing, but uh, is there, is it cheaper for the prison industry to facilitate this? Is it easier for them? Is it it's just like, women just... don't sue as much as men. Okay. So they can be reasonably sure that they will be sued by a man who is seeking transfer to a woman's facility and they can be reasonably sure they're not going to be sued by a woman who's being housed with a man. Mm -hmm. Until now. Okay. <laughs> so, um, until now, is there a... What is this? Is there a structure? Is there an institution that you guys are formulating or a bunch of briefs? Like, what's the process, the technical, mechanical process of reversing that incentive structure? Yeah. Is so it raising we... awareness to women prisoners, or giving them access, or is it to actually petition on their behalf... Uh, through the state and the prison system. So we filed the lawsuit framing um, claims on behalf of four individual women, um, not not for damages for any past events, but challenging the, the, the law on its face and describing the harms that these four and many other women are experiencing, framing those harms in terms of being cruel and unusual punishment, a deprivation of equal protection of the law based on sex, um, you know, violations of our First Amendment rights and the Establishment Clause, and hmm. um, looking to say to, for the, the federal court to tell the prison system you just can't enforce this law. You just can't, you're not, you just can't be allowed to, to enforce this um, uh, with, without violating the constitution. So that's, it, it's, it's a, we're seeking, we're seeking an injunction against um, any kind of rolling back to um, before men started transferring over. Could you could we define injunction just for idiots like me? What what exactly is that? Yeah, we're looking for the court to tell the prison system you are not allowed to transfer anybody else, and in fact, you need to find a separate place that isn't the women's prison for men you have transferred over so far. And you're doing that within California, and if California adopts that, then it gets kicked up federally. Is or do it other states just? If they, if we win at this level and they appeal, then it would get kicked up. I imagine they would appeal. 
And we will to, if we don't win. <laughs> so okay, yeah. So what would help you? Um, I, I, I guess financial, of course. You guess uh, get tons of money. I'm sure you want that. But uh, like media attention, like what would actually, from the outsider point of view, the the public facilitate your the process that you're tr- trying to put? Yeah, in. media, and then funding is a huge thing. Um, Wolf is funding the Chandler lawsuit very generously. Um, and I know that they're also open to other, uh, actions going forward as well. Um, and then, you know, other people who might need to do some crowdfunding or things like that. And so it really is some of these things, it's not just, you know, fees, it could be costs associated with expert witnesses or different things that can be really substantial. Um, and it's just out of pocket, you know. So, so if if we look at the funding um, from your team versus the ACLU or the entire oh. NGO complex, I'm sure you guys are up against a, a huge dark source of money. And by dark, I don't mean like Darth Vader. I just mean it's filtered through all these NGOs. This kind of super state that that kind of rules. Um, like, there's an asymmetry there. One might say it's like kind yeah. of a David Goliath or maybe a, a it's not just, mouse it's just, elephant. just dollar signs either. There's you look at the caption on our documents. It's me and Candace. And there's like 20 of them from the ACLU, <laughs> Lambda Legal, Transgender Law Center, some fancy California law firm. And then there's the state attorney general's office and a bunch of bodies at that. And then it's like me and Candace over here. But we're, you know, it's helpful that we're right and that we're really smart. Um, and that they're wrong. So it kind of evens out. Yeah, because uh, rationality will totally rule the day. Eventually. At what cost, I guess? Our sanity. Yeah, well, yeah. And uh, women, uh, physical um, safety. Yeah. I don't think there's a, I don't think there's like a bottom, just so you know. I I don't think that there's a point at which some horrible harm happens and people just realize like i don't think it's someone gets murdered or anything i don't think there's anything like that so, because that that's the power of the the brainwashing effect of 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 this um ideology honestly around gender it is it, you you you're able to justify and write off anything you see because you're in pursuit of something that has been pre-concluded and predetermined as a, a capital G good, a, a very special and wonderful, mystical, metaphysical good in the universe to be pursuing for yourself and, and, and for others. It makes you a very, very, very good person. And, and there is no mere material harm or injury that can't be written off as, well, you know, it would have happened anyway. You know, women get raped anyway. There are some male guards, you know. Some women do get pregnant in prison anyway. You know, it happens anyway. That That's a big question. That's what happened. You hear they that? People Scott. say that? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They asked Senator Scott Wiener, who is the, one of the um, sponsors of the bill. Uh, a reporter asked him after we filed suit about one of our plaintiffs who was sexually assaulted. And he said that sexual assault is nothing new to men's or women's prisons and that there's channels in place to deal with it or something like that mm-hmm. yep. oh. that's what he said okay uh wow he was he the spearhead he's or 
<laughs> well, <laughs> Sorry. some jokes about that. No, that's okay. Um, maybe he'll identify as a eunuch if the right person gets a hold of him. Anyway, so um, he's the guy who's uh, pushing the law where California is like this uh, sanctuary uh, city or state for uh, transgender youth, right? Yep. Yep. So California is kind of becoming a sausage factory in a way. He, he also remo- he also didn't he spearhead that change in the statute of limitations. They called it like age of consent parity yeah. for yeah. So instead of instead of instead of making it harder for men to molest little harder for men to molest little boys, they made it easier for them to molest little girls. I can't almost got that mixed up. Just wrong thinking. That's kind of uh, equality and parity that's Im- important for the gay community, right? Yeah. It, it's right. So, he, yeah, I mean, he, um, activists like that, politician activists like that are are perfect examples of how this, this isn't just the gender identity thread. It's also the, the queer sexuality thread. And it, it's in that it's in that intersection um, of of gender identity and and uh, queer theory that um, uh, uh, you see a, a lot of things that are motivating and, and concerning parents a lot right now, motivating and concerning um, a lot of uh, lesbian and gay people across the country because it's like, oh, wait a minute. No, this is not being done in our name. No, this is not pro-gay this is not what gay needs or what being homosexual is about or what we've ever thought we needed in society um this is really truly an endangerment and ripping down of of safeguards for vulnerable groups women and children so is it how many steps is there between um what's happening with regard to males and female prisons and uh if how many steps between the erosion of sex as a reality and the erosion of age as reality or is there is a lot more stable with regard to age no. than it is to sex no. and in in part because of the way that critical theory around gender and around sexuality the way that 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 that, that queer theory academically and then translated or sort of infiltrated into social justice politics, the way that that has happened, there's never been any defined or described even parameter or criteria that would limit this um, I am whoever I say I am and whatever I say I am to, there's nothing that's ever limited that to sex. There's nothing that's ever said for some reason um, you know, the, the category of um, male and female is what can be uh, subjectively chosen and felt. I can feel my way through it, but nothing else. Not my not my age, not my date of birth, not my place of birth. Not, you know, uh, there, there is no reason um, wh- why. Why that kind of self-determination wouldn't apply to any kind of characteristic or experience or group or categorization of any kind. The only reason why it's been so heavily gender focused so far, um, I think, is because there, because sex is a universal characteristic. Everybody has one, and so everybody is potentially at, in play when it comes to playing around with concepts of sex versus 
how is what what is sex and how is it determined? Um, so there's an inherent connection between sex and sexuality, and the way that age automatically plays into that is that from the very beginning of discussions of sex and sexuality, one of the main norms other than the sex binary that has always been under attack uh, academically and now politically is is age, that it is arbitrary, that it is stifling, that it is oppressive to impose age-based rules or restrictions or judgments or moral um, uh, you know, rules against anybody because of age, whether it's because they are young and what we would have always called underage or whether it's because they are older and and facing certain realities from that so the the age and sexuality and sex uh continuum or or connect the dots is is almost automatic you're going to rip down the sex boundary you are ripping down the age boundary okay uh sorry there's this uh, Johnny Rotten, I think. No, not Johnny Rotten. Uh, the guy who, uh, the head of Jackass, which is an MTV, like a really stupid show where these bros like just damage their bodies by hitting each other in the testicles or running into barbed wire fences or something like that. He did a movie, whoever, Johnny something, he did a movie where he identified as um, mentally challenged in order to get into the Special Olympics. Oh. And, uh, and, uh, I'm uh, there's I I don't know if that I don't know if it's an easier pill to swallow at this particular point in history for uh let's say a, a grown man identifying as a team in order to play on a team uh teen sports league and then just haul ass and get a bunch of awards it seems like that would be the social norm of rejecting that rather than the law the law wouldn't be able to object that especially if there's so much power radical feminists checking in here okay that's because um in that scenario you have an adult man who's impacting the athletic opportunities for boys not for girls and women and that is something that is valued by our society. It would feel unfair to ask them to accommodate some adult's whim to want to do that throwback thing. That's my opinion. But um, it just seems like it would be a harder pill to swallow, whereas a teenage boy identifying as a teenage girl uh, is kind of championed under the trans rights acceptance push, the civil liberties right, thing. Right, but so, it's, you know... I think it harder <laughs> this whole identity thing. I it's so funny because when we talk about it, we really I think some people are asking us to believe it versus people asking us to just act like it. But there are some people who insist that we change our inner selves to I mean, it's not enough to just act like it. You have to they want to see it in your eyes that you they want you to sacrifice your firstborn and everything to it. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Basically. But, but I guess what I'm, my point is, is that the law is just a bunch of pieces of paper. And uh, in, 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 it's, it's the enforcement of the law, which means it's the culture that believes in the law and then uh, follows through on that. So, 
the yes. shift in, in gender, what you guys are doing with the law needs to be facilitated or backed up by a cultural perception in order for it to actually uh, take effect. And you would have to change people's perspective uh, on a mass scale, or at least you don't even probably don't have to change them. You just need to make them aware of that um, and, and kind of poke through the narrative that, that is backing mm -hmm. up this push. I think that's right. But yeah. And, and I, I do think that it, the appearance of uh, some kind of social dominance or consensus that identity is, is paramount and uh, purely self-determined and unchallengeable. I, I, I think that's a very false consensus. I, I, I don't think that that's where most people are at. I, I don't, I don't think that we have the the hard job of say shifting the Overton window. I think we have the the slightly easier job of making of of pointing out what what the impacts really are, what the inconsistencies and incoherencies really are, and just trying to give enough people permission to voice what is already their own skepticism. Like breaking through the narrative that it's kind of a left-right thing, which it yeah. really only is for activists and elected officials. That's where I, you hmm. know, I'm a lefty. Most of my friends and family are lefties. And um, if you don't approach it like you're telling them some dirty secret about yourself, you know, if you're just like, hey, yeah, this is what's going on and we're suing California for this. And you literally just say factually what's going on. Um, that's fine. And, you know, there's kind of a grassroots uh, consciousness raising on the left about this issue. And we're seeing state lawmakers, um, dozens of them, Democratic lawmakers at the state level who are voting for uh, Save Women's Sports Bills and for child trans bans and things like that. Um, so that's very heartening. And there's just really like a chokehold in the nonprofit advocacy, you mm. know, party political party kind of and it's just not reality at all so you're talking about giving people permission but i really think just letting people know it's not you know hmm. it's it's not left right everyone basically agrees on this stuff <sighs> they just don't know it yet oh wow yeah um wow okay so what is this thing that you guys are doing called? I didn't ask that at the beginning. Do you guys have a cool name or an acronym? Oh no. Yeah, yeah. Our, our names are cool enough that our that our law firm name is cool too. So we are Jackson Bone LLP. And I, I I tried to pitch Lauren on a on a business slogan that that would be, you know, Jackson Bone because we know who the women are, but she wouldn't let me do that. So. We talk about we talk, we talk about uh, civil rights and rational solutions and frame things in, in in that in that way that we've we've got to return to some objective logic and basic uh, fundamentals of of law here and then we can hash out. Um, hey, you describe for me what the what the group of people even is that we're talking about, and I would be glad to have a conversation about how to improve um their their quality of life without harming anybody else mm -hmm. 
but you can't even tell me who the group of people is. And that freaks me out because law does not deal with that very well without then becoming extremely repressive and dictatorial and authoritarian toward anyone who's not in that focused on undefinable group. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, I can imagine that while the prison um, issue is very graphic, uh, very gut wrenching, um, and and just like very obviously, um, like there's bad things to look at. Even though that is the case, I'm sure that there'd probably be more support um, on the public level uh, with regard to schools, maybe, and uh, you know, parents protecting their children. Uh, there's all these different vectors of work to do and uh, vectors of interest to get people involved um, and and to kind of like. spend their time and their money and their energy uh, pushing in in any given direction. So bringing up schools, is there any cases or uh, fronts that you guys are seeing um, for for parents and um, challenges uh, in in that domain? Because I think that there's a lot of groundswell support on that, probably even more than sports. but I think it still hasn't, we haven't seen the crest of that wave of parents actually uh, standing up, but more and more and more are waking up to this. So, Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think that um, they also, one of, one of the differences is that that is a group that has a lot more political power. Um, they can definitely use legal tactics as a strategy, they can also, you know, vote, (laughs) vote and show up at meetings and stuff. But I do think that there's, there's, we're definitely looking at that um, in terms of our strategy of, of, of addressing this issue. Um, In particular, just in the current context of having these proposed rules and there's other different things going on. Um, federally and at a state level. So, um, but it's like parents and parents' rights, students' rights, um, teachers' rights. It's everybody interacting with the education system has their own rights as individuals, especially if this school or this education system is a state actor, you know, and therefore um, we've seen some of the most success so far for cases that have had that, like there's a case last year that was decided, or it's, I guess, still being kind of appealed, but Meriwether, um, which was a professor and preferred pronouns. And it was a great case because it was decided not just on religious beliefs, but on free speech and academic freedom grounds. And that's very, very important. Um, what was the case just, uh, in brief, what was the brief? Meriwether versus, oh God. So a teacher, uh, didn't want to use, professor. Or, uh, Mm-hmm. Okay, so professor denied uh, pronouns. Yeah, he didn't want to use any pronouns. He was willing to use um, just the person's name. Um, and it worked for a little bit, and then it didn't work, and there was a whole back and forth, and eventually he um, just, the school took the side of the student, and the court took the side of of him uh, and found that they were, because he did bring a religious discrimination claim on it as well, not just, and 
they were very, they did not treat it in a balanced way with regards to his, his religious claim at all. And so that reflected really poorly on the school as well. Um, because they didn't approach it seriously in any way, but, um, and there's other cases, there's similar cases that are in different jurisdictions that are making their way through. So teachers are fighting that battle. Um, that's it's yeah. it's interesting. I know that um, Maya Forstadter case out in the UK hinged on her belief in uh, gender critical. Yeah. Like they had to. It just it's interesting where we all have to be believers now. We have to put on the mantle of of uh, a religious yeah. exemption for uh, biological reality. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I hope that people keep in mind the difference um, between statements of fact and 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 statements uh, of, of belief um both both might be protected maybe for different reasons and at, and at different boundary lines right and so i think it is important that we keep fighting for recognition that statement of a a, a pure fact a bare fact um it, it just cannot form one of those building blocks of, of harassment or um or, or some kind of discrimination charge. Um, and then separately, so with Maya Forstadter's case, you could argue that the belief portion was in a, a part two. So one is male and female exist, and that's a thing. The belief part is that that matters. <laughs> that is significant to how women fare in society. That's a, that, that is fairly characterized as a political belief or, or, or some kind of sociological belief that I've said this, the fact, now I'm going to tell you why that fact matters and what mm -hmm. society do about it. Uh, so that that is a distinction that should continue to be fought for here in the U.S. is, no, it, it is not just a matter of, well, I believe this, but you believe that. There there does need to be a restoration of a base level of, of mm -hmm. objective fact. Before and we go back to arguing uh, about, you know, therefore, what should we do about those facts? That was the classic battle of the sexes. That's where we were for a while. And this has derailed that. We also have uh, facts aside, we have the right to not believe anything at all. We don't have to have a belief in sex as a biological thing. We could still just choose. I could be agnostic on that, on the issue of the gender identity. You still... I could say, I don't know, maybe it sounds, sounds reasonable. Maybe I believe, but I don't know if I believe. And you still can't compel me to believe, even if I don't believe something else. Um, because it is a faith-based thing. It's essentially a gendered soul. And I don't have to, this is America. I don't have to believe in a soul. Hmm. I could believe we're all lizards if I want. Or at least those in charge. <laughs> and I could see if I could get some people to pass a law saying, you all have to believe it too. We'll see how it goes. Uh, so, uh, what's some things coming up? Uh, so, uh, I'll, I'll put all the links in the description, but do you guys do like a legal podcast on this? Or are there rolling updates? Do you have like a, what, what, what would it be called? A media arm? She just cut oh, out. No, Candace, Candace, Candace ditched us. We have, we do, we did set up a Twitter. Um, so, it's Jackson Bone Law and be updating that in our website, jacksonbonelaw.com. Um and we can be following those. We have filed uh, one action already on detransitioning. And so at this time, that's not something just for strategic reasons and for privacy reasons. 
not going to be public on the details of, but that might change um, uh, coming up here. But we've also had a lot of inquiries on the same issue from other people. So it's just a matter of vetting those for um, within hmm. the statute of limitations. Is it a state we practice in and all of that? Okay. Um, there she is. So um, we didn't get into the detransition front, but just briefly, we can wrap it up here, but just briefly, uh, what is some of the movement or the vectors of lawfare with regard to detransition? And uh, what are some I, of the resources in that direction? Yeah, I, if, I, I want to focus on holding the mental health professional side of things accountable. I think that they are the linchpin in many ways to all of the medicalization in the sense that, um, you know, a lot of times I think, I think a surgeon or an endo or a pediatrician who prescribes stuff uh, can very easily say, but wait a minute, I took medical necessity as a given based on this professional over here saying that for mental health reasons for this person, this is medically necessary. Then I did my job. So I, I think that kind of passing the buck needs to stop at the mental health side. And that's what we're focused on with our, our first case out of the gate is going after uh, the two mental health professionals who just as a matter of boilerplate and just pushing somebody onto a conveyor belt, sign, you know, these two signed off on letters uh, for surgery. And would an organization like WPATH or the APA or some sort of like professional organization, do they, are they ever held accountable? And would that be where the buck stop? Can you sue those organizations? Or are they like super legal? It, that is, that is much more difficult. So we are in some strategizing sessions with some people who have had their eyes on how do we go after the professional associations that, that, that would break down the, the false consensus is, is to make them answer for some of this. Um, so it, it is not straightforward here in the U.S. at all because they put out guidance. They put out best practices. They put, you know, they train professionals. But, it, hey, it's still the professional's independent judgment. And it's still state or federal law. And it's still this and it's still that. So it's a little indirect uh, and would require some, I think, novel applications of, of theories, but it is definitely um, on, on, on our radar to, to try to figure out how to do that. Same thing, similarly, analogously to me, I would love to go after some of the groups that actually get into schools that, that bring, that are outside groups that come in and do the trainings and write the BS and train the trainers and so forth. There, it is almost outright fraud, I think, what goes on, that they come in to government-funded schools and lie. But they lie virtuously. Very. Those are the best <laughs> kinds of liars. <laughs> wow. We got into some intense stuff. Uh, Candace, we, we've done this, uh, the, I guess this is my third time speaking with you, I believe, um, on in recording. And it's great uh, to meet you uh, as well, Lauren. Um, so I'll link all the links in the description. Um, any, any other tidbits you guys want to leave the audience with? Either black pill or white pill, hope or despair, call to arms, anything like that. I have one thing. Past yeah, the Salem witch trials, we'll get past this too. That's right. And I, I, I think just in the last few weeks, you know, now uh, the the number of people that have, um, you know, kind of 
given encouragement and expressed a desire to help the client, the clients, potential clients that we want to be representing and working with is really heartening. I think the legal aspect of this is is just one of the threads that is is coming together to to really really push back uh, on this so that we I think a lot of us feel like this has been a distraction an unfortunate distraction and I hope that we I hope that we use the opportunities that are in here to for example build a more rational and and coalesced women's movement I think that's that's going to be a benefit from from all of this I think that fewer things being automatically left right is going to be uh, a benefit, and and I think there's going to be some settling in um, despite any any kind of surface backlash. I think there's going to be some open settling down, settling in of gay and lesbian Americans in into society, and um, openly acknowledging and recognizing that yeah, actually there are a lot of us that 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 want to be part of uh, mainstream society society and and it, it is not there's no inherent link between homosexuality and queerness hmm. lauren last words just i'm really excited to be working on this and um i think it's gonna do i think it's gonna look really different a year from now Oh wow! Okay, that that soon. The law doesn't usually. It's not just law; it's the politics too. It's everything together because when you have things, it starts to influence the way um, lawmakers and bureaucrats do things in response. And so it's like mm -hmm. an ecosystem. Um, so we're trying to kind of throw a wrench in it. Wow! From that perspective, amazing. Hopeful. I think Candace is frozen yet again. Oh, no, there she is. Blinking oh, there she in and is. Out. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you right. both so much for your time and for all the thank work you. you do. And have a good day. Thanks. Bye. 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 Bye, Candace. Thank you. Have fun with your family. Uh, okay. Mm. Oh.